so far we've looked at six of these word pictures. Pastors are to be like the relationship. Their relationship is like the relationship between elders and the clan, like overseers over a workforce, governors over a province, teachers with learners, stewards over a household, and servants of God and his people. Well, this afternoon we're going to be taking a look at two other word pictures. A pastor is like a father with his children and like a shepherd with his flock of sheep. But before we do that, let us pray for the help and the grace of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you set forth through various ways in your word that which would capture our imagination in order that we might have understanding of your word. And we pray that as we consider this issue once again of the office of elder, that you would give us a fresh understanding and appreciation for what you have said to us concerning who he ought to be, what, that which he should aspire to be, and that also this would be realized in us who are shepherds in this place. Bless us even now with your help and your grace by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. We pray it in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, I had preached, or I, I shouldn't say preached, I had prepared way too much uh, this sermon, and so one of the things that I'm going to cut out is an, an interesting little story, an introductory story that I might have given to you, and uh, I want to just therefore begin right away with these last two, and the seventh of these word pictures is that an elder is like a father with his children. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read that if the pictures of a pastor as a governor and if the picture of the overseer seems austere, the picture of a father, it shows that this government, whatever it is, is a government of love. And so we read among the qualifications, and we're going to look at this more in detail later on, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, we read that the elder is to be, quote, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And in this comparison between elders and fathers, there are two aspects of fatherhood that stand out. The first is the picture of taking care of something. Taking care, he says, of the household of God. And this we find in verse 5. In that verse, there is a word that is translated take care or simply care in the New King James, New American, also the ESV. And the Greek word that's used in this place, it only occurs in two other places in the New Testament, and both of them are in the same passage. And we're not going to take time to turn there because it's a very familiar passage. It is in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And in that place we read about two men that passed by on the other side and didn't pay any attention to the man that was lying half dead in the ditch. But then along came a Samaritan traveling down the same road who had compassion on that man. And in verses 34 and 35 of that chapter, Jesus depicts the practical way in which the compassion of this man was manifested. We read that the Samaritan, quote, 
went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and then here's the word, and took care of him. And on the next day, we read on, when he departed, he took two took out two denarii, he gave them to the innkeeper, and he said to him, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, when the elder is said to take care of the church, the picture that we get is the picture of a father who takes care of his own household, and he does so uh, not just by fixing the shingles when they're loose or whatever, That's not the issue that's at stake, but it's the issue of rendering tender, compassionate, practical care to his children. At three o'clock in the morning, a loving father hears the cry of one of his children, and knowing that his wife is exhausted from the activities of the previous day, they've got several children at young age, and hearing in that cry a real sense of need from that little one that needs to be met, he doesn't just holler out to that child, be quiet, I'm trying to sleep. What does he do? Out of compassion for his little one, he gets up and he takes care of his little child. Maybe the little boy had a dream that there's elephants under his bed. So he takes a flashlight and says, look, there's no elephants under the bed. And then the boy is is still worried about it. He says, okay, what I'll do is I'll get a blanket and pillow. I'm going to lay down and sleep here so that you know that there will be no elephants that will get under your bed for the rest of the night. What's he doing? He's taking care in a practical way, a compassionate way, of the fear of his little son. And likewise, an elder must be sensitive to the needs of those entrusted to his care. And this requires getting to know the fears and the trials and the needs of those who are in the spiritual family that make up the local church where he ministers. And it also requires that the members of the spiritual house that, so to speak, they let their spiritual father know, their pastor know, if there's a problem, if they're struggling with this or that sin or this or that trial or, or difficulty. And this care, it goes beyond caring for physical needs. The deacons especially have been tasked with the issue of caring for those needs. And yes, pastors can also sometimes interject and by helping out in some way with the physical needs of, of uh, church members. But especially when a a member has been hospitalized uh, due to a serious illness or an operation, whatever the case, the compassionate pastor, he's going to visit that member in the hospital and he's going to take care of that one going through that trial. And they will also care for those with not just physical needs, though, but primarily, and this is the main, main sphere of the labor of the pastor, is to take care of God's people with respect to their spiritual needs. In every church, there are going to be those that are spiritually weak. There are perhaps those in the congregation that have been Christians for a long time, and they've been recipients of good instruction over a period of time. And to bring believers to a higher level of understanding, it requires a lot of work, but it's comparatively easy compared to some other aspects of pastoring. But to help them to go beyond just having their head stuffed full of knowledge, but to actually grow in grace. This is the harder work of being a pastor. And so caring pastors will be concerned even for such ones that are struggling in any way spiritually. 
They see those that are prone to spiritual depression, for instance, and they are not taking the comforts of the gospel the way they should to help them to get through those times. So the pastors will seek to help them. They'll care for them in wrestling through with that spiritual depression. Like a good Samaritan, they will pour in the oil of the gospel and they will bandage up the wounds of their, of their, of their struggles with the healing truths of the gospel. Caring pastors, they will also see some in the congregation that are peculiarly vulnerable to sin. And maybe there's a certain sin that has a peculiar power over one of the sheep. And try as they might, they can't shake that sin loose, whether it be lust or anger or some other sin. And so lovingly the pastor exhorts such a one with the exhortations of Scripture. And loving fathers, they know that constant scolding, expressions of irritation, angry denunciations, if that's all they do with their children, with their problems, it's likely to drive them away. It's likely to bring bitterness into their hearts rather than repentance. And likewise, caring pastors, they know that they need to bring the gospel to sinners that struggle with, or saints that struggle with sin. They don't just denounce their sins from the pulpit. They care for them tenderly and compassionately, knowing that they too themselves struggle against sin. And they also perhaps see a declining Christian that's lost his first love. A caring pastor will know that such a one is in the spiritual doldrums. And when you get in the spiritual doldrums, you, you're, you're in a spiritually dangerous state. You're prone to, t- to temptations, to a fall perhaps in a way you never wa- thought you would. In some cases, such persons are perilously close to a fall. And so a caring pastor sees this. And so he will see ways in which in his sermon, and in his private ministries, he can remind those persons of the constraining love of a dying Savior, that that Savior should quicken their hearts and stir them up to, to love and respond to their Savior in such a way that they get back and have their love, first love restored once again. Well, these are just some of the ways that a spiritual father cares for God's children. But then there's a second way. We're still thinking about pastors as spiritual fathers. The fatherlike work of pastors also manifests itself in managing the household of God. Now notice what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, once again. As the New King James puts it, the elder must be, quote, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now in both the New American and the English Standard, the Greek word that's translated rule in the New King James, which I just read to you, the word translated rule there in those versions is translated manage. And the word literally means to set over or to Set before, uh, this is what it means, the basic meaning of the word. It clearly refers to the task of governing or superintending or ruling or managing. And so whether you translate it ruling or whether you translate it managing, those are both good and accurate translations of that word. Exercising this kind of rule in the context of a family especially, it has the, the, the atmosphere of, of manage them. Uh, it's not the picture of a guy with a whip in his hand and he, and he makes sure that everybody's in line. 
Uh, that's not the picture of the father with his household. And I think that's perhaps why some translators are attracted to that word manage as opposed to the word rule to translate the word in this context. Now, as we have just observed, father-like elders, they care for God's house. But the term translated rule or manage, it reminds us that sometimes father-like elders need to use something more than just sweet and comforting words. There are times when fathers of a household need to speak in a way to make it clear that they expect obedience, and they expect it right now. That's the way they are in the household. Time for devotions, now. And they say it with some, some firmness. It's expected that there's going to be a response. And in the household of God, there are times when warnings and reproofs are in order. And these verses tell us that in the literal home of an elder, a father must have his children in, the word is used, submission. On one hand, there ought to be a warm atmosphere in the home. The children shouldn't dread being around their father, wondering if, when he's going to explode next, when he's going to slap them, or when he's going to hit them. There's not an atmosphere you see like that, an atmosphere of fear. But on the other hand, fathers need to be more than just the buddies of their children. They need to be those that manage their children and, and direct their children with, with straightforward directions. When godly fathers in the home see deficiencies in the character of their children, they need to give themselves to molding that character in the right way. And what we see in these verses, you see, is not just free-range parenting, just letting children develop on their own, just free-range, let them go wherever they want to, that's what parenting is all about. Some people think that's the greatest way that we should raise children. It's an awful way. Well, instead, you see, the house ruler, he gives directions. And when those directions are disobeyed, then there's consequences. Children need to know that there are certain boundaries. And even when these boundaries are transgressed, something's going to be done about it. And likewise, in the house of God, father-like elders, they must take the lead. They need to let the congregation what God expects of them what the Bible expects of them. There are times when getting feedback, yes, is, is appropriate for the congregation. doesn't mean that ruling and managing in God's household makes us oblivious to the input of God's people. It's like sometimes when you're on a, on a vacation and you, you see the signs of what's coming up and you're trying to save time and you want to get a, a, a close, quick bite, you, you, you take a vote in the car. Is it McDonald's or Burger King? We see both these, these coming up. Which one are we going to do? And I don't think there's anything wrong with a father uh, letting, getting some input over such a thing. But there are times when elders, they need to make a decision. And then they will explain that decision to the congregation, seeking to use biblical principles that led them to that decision. And as godly fathers make rules for the household based on a desire to build godly character in their children, father-like elders, they do the same, you see, with setting the policies in the church with a view to pleasing God. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see how these two features, the feature of caring for the house of God and the feature of managing or ruling, these are blended together wonderfully in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Father-like care, as well as father-like firmness, are both necessary. And so in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12, we read, You know 
how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So on one hand, the rule is gentle. It's suffused with encouragement and comfort. We were gentle among you, he says in verse 7. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, there's the picture of a caring, loving father. And on the other hand, Paul's rule was very firm. He includes in this same, these same verses earnest exhortations and solemn charges that he gave to them. Likewise, elders, they need to use copious doses uh, on one hand of, of gentleness in their ministry, and yet they need also to be firm and, and take a stand. Like fathers whose children are submission with, with reverence, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4. They are to, 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 to lead them in that way. All this should be driven by a loving desire, of course, to mold the character of God's children, shaping them into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, then, is the seventh word picture that we have, that of a father with his children. And now I want to come to the eighth and the final biblical word picture of the relationship of pastors and their congregation. No doubt there are some others that could be discovered in the word, but it seemed to me that in discovering this relationship, these eight are prominent in God's word. And the picture that I want to spend our time on for the rest of our time this afternoon is that they are to be like shepherds with a flock of sheep. And here I'd like you to turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now in the 1611 King James Version, there's a translation of the very first words of verses 2. In this way, feed the flock of God. And therefore, among some of the older commentaries, it was supposed, and it was a very common interpretation, that the expression that's translated feed, it only refers to feeding, that is, giving instruction to God's people. And that serving as overseers and taking the oversight, these refer to government. And so there's the giving the word out, and then these other words... Feeding is one, one word, and then these other words refer to government. And if the translation feed adequately represents the force of the original word, there would be a lot to commend that interpretation. But the original word that Peter uses, it means to act the part or discharge the duty of a shepherd. It's a, a verb, it's an action. 
And that's why, in good trans, in many of the more recent translations, New King James, New American, ESV, they all rightly translate the word with the verb shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God. Now, to procure food for the flock, this is an important part. Yes, they're to feed. This is an important part of their duties. But it's not the only duty of the pastor. He must also strengthen the weak, heal the sick, bind up the broken, bring back those that have wandered, seek the lost. He needs to go before them. He needs to lead. He needs to guide the flock. He needs to protect the flock from wolves. And as the Greek word that's translated pastor simply means shepherd, there's a correlation, you see, between the duties of a literal shepherd and those who are pastors, or the the word pastor simply means shepherds. There's a connection, you see, between these two, uh, between this this issue of what they're to do. And then the outlines that are there in your bulletins We feature five main duties of the shepherd of God's flock. And as time allows, we want to go over these five duties. And I've listed a lot of references. I have to send these outlines to Sharman before I ever have time to write them out. And so I never have any idea if I'm going to get through all these verses. But I put them in there anyway in case you want to go through and study this on your own later on, looking up these various verses. And because there are a lot of them, I'm going to be quoting some of them rather than having you turn to them. Uh, one after the other. But the first thing that we see in these five responsibilities is that shepherds know their sheep. And here our best model is Christ, the creek, the chief shepherd. In John 14 or John 10:14, Jesus says, "I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own." There's a mutual knowledge between him and his sheep. And here it's helpful to distinguish between knowing the sheep in a broad congregational sense, knowing the whole congregation in in that broad sense, and knowing them one by one on an individual particular level. And I want to say a word, first of all, about knowing the flock in a broad congregational sense. It's important that the pastor, for one thing, can identify the sheep for whom he is responsible. He needs to know, okay, now, which sheep are in this fold that I have to tend? That's an important question to ask. And this is assumed in the words of Jesus in John 10, verses 14 to 16. He says in those verses, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now what's the significance that I want you to notice in those verses that I just read? Jesus knew something that in a twofold way. He knew his sheep in two ways. He knew those that were already in the fold, and he knew those that would yet would be brought into the fold later on. Now, none of us know the second part. We don't know the future, do we? But Jesus did. He knew the present identity of those that were already in his sheepfold and the future identity of those that would be added to that fold. And even though pastors cannot know the identity of those that will yet be added to the flock, 
They should know those that are already in the flock. And this issue is closely related to the issue of church membership. And I don't have time to give you a full explanation as to why we believe in why we believe that the Bible teaches that church membership is a biblical thing. But with respect to the pastor knowing his flock, he needs to know who is in that flock. And this is especially important in answering this question. If elders exercise authority over the sheep in the name of Christ, who does he, do they exercise authority over? And what about the day that they're going to give an account? They need to give account for those that are entrusted to their care. Who are the ones for whom they will give an account? Is it somebody that visited a couple of times? Well, now they're the ones that I'm accountable for. Well, maybe that's a little bit unreasonable. What about if somebody comes for a whole month? Is that, is that the standard? You see, there's, there's no standard that, that, is, that is accurate like that, except for this, that they are ones that in a special way have been identified and could be counted as part of that particular flock. And it's for those ones, Hebrews 13, 17, that they will give an account in the last day. But we're not going to be able to go into this in great detail. I'm very thankful that in the adult class this morning that uh, uh, Drew went through this whole issue of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys, the, the picture of is that you use a key to open something, or open a door, you use a key to close the door. And so the church and the pastors and taking leadership of the church they welcome into the church those that are members of the church and they turn out those that are no longer living consistent with membership in the church and this we call excommunication but all of that it relates to this question who is in the flock and who is not in the flock so knowing the flock in this broad sense it includes knowing who are a part of that flock but i also want to say that in knowing the congregation in a broader sense it also includes knowing the general characteristics of the flock of the church in which the pastor labors. There are differences between churches. There are rural congregations and there are urban congregations. There are congregations that are monocultural. And there are congregations that are multicultural. Many different ethnic backgrounds. Oftentimes cities, churches are more like that. There are congregations filled with new converts. And then there are also congregations that primarily are made up of mature saints. There are congregations with a lot of young children that are congregations with mostly older people. Congregations made primarily of white-collar workers. Congregations made up of blue-collar workers, some that have both types of workers in the church. There are congregations with spiritual traits, some that tend to be legalistic and censorious about anybody that's on the outside and even people on the inside. They're very, very condemning, you see. That's the, the tendency. We got the right rules. We're the right ones, you see. And then there are the other ones that, the other congregations that are very lax and anything goes, and we call that antinomianism, and there's a lack of careful obedience to God's commands. And all of us basically are tempted in one way or another with those two extremes and congregations can have the spiritual characteristics. Pastors need to know what their church really needs, you see, what needs to be corrected, by and large, more than the opposite. There are congregations in which there are, that are strong in the area of evangelism, and then there are others that are strong in other areas of cultivating, for instance, family godliness and so forth. And so there are strong points in various congregations, and the weak points, of course, need to be addressed by the pastors. So this is part of knowing the sheep, knowing 
these spiritual and other characteristics on a broader level. But knowing the members of the flock also involves knowing them in a personal, individual manner. And here I'd like you to turn with me, please, to the book of Acts in chapter 20. Here we have the record of Paul's last meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, in the midst of his speech to these elders, a very moving speech, one of the most moving speeches in the Bible. We read the beginning of this speech, verse 18, that when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always have lived among you. He refers to the way he conducted himself. He made tents, you remember. He worked hard. He, could, he was an example, you see. He says, you know how he lived. He lived among them. They were able to observe his manner of life. They knew him. He knew them. There was a lot of contact between them. Verse 19, and how did this take place? How did he live among them? Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Paul opened up his heart to them. He was transparent, even to the point of his tears being shed, and they could see them. They witnessed this. Verse 20, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. He not only preached to the whole assembly, but he visited from house to house. And this was key to his ability to know what would be most profitable to them. He adapted his need, his ministry to meet, you see, the deficits and the needs of the people. And now skip down to verse 28. He says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And just like Paul was among them, they could observe him. He says, now you do the same. He says, you live among them and take heed to yourselves. Watch out your, watch your life, you see. But also take heed and be watchful over the flock. And the Holy Spirit has given you this task to shepherd them. And in order to shepherd them, you need to know them. These elders, they lived among the flock. They were overseers in this flock. They watched for the souls of the people in this flock. They observed what needed to be observed. Verse 31, Therefore, he says, Watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Again, you see, whether it's publicly or privately, he was close enough that they could observe and they could remember the tears by which they could see that he really loved them and he really cared for them. They knew how he felt. And the fact that he warned them night and day, it also indicates his availability. In his book, The Elder and His Work, David Dixon, a Scottish Presbyterian pastor who began his ministry around 1850, he describes the relationship that should exist between the elder and his flock. He says he must be acquainted with them all, old and young, their history, their occupation, their habits, 
their ways of thinking. They and their children should be their personal friends so that they naturally turn to him as one on whom they can depend as a kind and sympathizing friend and a faithful counselor. Around the same time, Charles Bridges ministered, not in Scotland, but in England. And in his book, one of the greatest works on what a pastor is to be, it's just simply called The Christian Ministry. He wrote, emphasizing the manner again in which a pastor should be a constant learner. He receives instruction for the lowliest ones of his church. And his time with his people, he says, as he learns from them, as he spends time with them, this time is a treasure house that furnishes the most valuable material for his sermons. He writes, the sermons thus made in our parishes differ from those that are thought out or collected in the study. If they are less abstract, they are more pointed and experimental. We mark the precise evil requiring attention, the deficiency calling for exhortation, the circumstances needing advice, the distress or perplexity looking for consolation and encouragement. And thus the pastoral preaching gives a local and instructive application to our public, public to our pulpit ministry. Well, this kind of interaction is also instructive to the church members. It's not only helping the pastor to know how to preach, but it helps the church members to receive instruction. Bridges observes how very little of our pulpit discourses are comprehended, retained, or applied by them, except the word is brought to them in the smallest parcels and with the most direct application. The sound only is heard, while the meaning is never fixed on the mind with an intelligent or permanent apprehension. And of course, part of this is it's just that just, we hear a lot of words in the sermon, don't you? How do you remember all those words? I, don't, I have a hard time remembering what I preached a month ago. How, do, how can I expect you, since I prepared this sermon, worked on it for hours and days, I can't expect that you're going to remember everything that I said. And it's not because you're, you're stupid, it's just, just that it's just the way it is. It's just hard to remember these things, one after another. And so there's a need sometimes, especially to have interaction with the, with the people, and this is instructive to the church members. You can help them by going over various points that have been made in the sermon or in various public ministries in recent days. But I want to just give an opportunity for you to just answer a question. And this is something that, by the way, Pastor Hill and I wrestle over is how we can best know you in these various ways. And I want to just ask you what you think are some of the ways in which pastors and the sheep can get to know one another better. Don't be afraid to step on my toes here. Yes. Yes. Okay, praying for one another. Okay, one of the best things you can do as pastors, but also as people, is you can say, Pastor, what can I pray for? That's a wonderful thing for a pastor to hear from, from somebody in the congregation. What it, you know, to, to, and sometimes it gives opportunity for some, uh, you know, being open-hearted about, about that matter. And the pastors could ask the same question. Okay, Bob. 
Okay, hospitality. This will be in the part of the members, on the part of of, uh, of the pastors and, and their families. Yes. Yes. Let them know that we're looking into things that they missed. Let them know that we're we're looking into the things that I missed the the end of it. Yes, like our notes. Oh, looking. Oh. Oh, going over the things that have been taught. Yeah, yeah that's, that's encouraging when the pastors know that somebody's reviewing those things. Yeah. Yes, Michael. The Because you talk... So you're talking about pastors visiting in the homes of the people? Yeah. In the, in the olden days, you didn't know when the pastor was going to come. It was, especially Richard Baxter, he was famous for getting around to so many people. But he would just go, the whole parish was his church, the whole village. And so he would just go from this house to the next house to the next house. And, of course, you didn't know as a, you know, I don't imagine he set up appointments for all of that to, to get through everybody. But anyway, uh, but most of the time we do. Sometimes we've had the situation of a sign-up sheet, and sometimes uh, we've just, you know, said, can I come over? Or, or, or maybe a family just asked for us to come over, and we're always happy to do that. Any, any other uh, ways in which we can find out things, get to know each other? Yes, William. Are you saved? Mm-hmm. Yep. And of course, of course, we we would assume that the ones we've interviewed and that are members of the church that they are believers. But uh, sometimes people they lack assurance. We can ask about that. You know, is there? You know, why do you believe you're a Christian? Is there? What's what's you know? What are you resting in? And uh, we're sinners up until the very day we die. And so, if what we're resting in is all the good that we're doing, that's a hopeless thing to rest in. We rest in Jesus. So, yeah, those kinds of questions are helpful. Yeah. So, anybody, anybody else want to say, mention something? Yes, John. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I count our, our lunch times as being one of the most valuable times for me. Just to, I try to try to sit down, not with just the same people every time, but get around to different ones of you to get to get to know you better. And of course, it's a little bit different. It's not like we're private. You know, there are some things we may be discussed in a private setting, but still, you can get to know a person a lot. You know, in, in that kind of a setting. Well, I'm surprised that uh, one of the most 
common things that we can do uh, because of our modern day, it's not been mentioned, and I'm sure that if we thought long enough, some one of you would come up with it, but phone calls. Um, we, we have things called phones that, that ring and the other end. And, and it used to be people picked up the phone and they answered the phone. And uh, when I we first got a phone for Timothy, uh, we just thought, you know, well, flip phone, that's fine. You know, you, you know, this works fine. You just punch these numbers in here and you can call me. Dad, these are not for, for calling people. It's the whole idea that, that these phones are for a, whole, for a whole other realm of purposes rather than calling people. But thankfully, there's still a work for us to be able to call one another. And this is one of the, and one of the advantages of, of phone calls is that it can be done more often. A visit is harder to set up, and then there maybe somebody is sick, you have to postpone it. And or maybe you have a sign-up sheet, and, and uh, various things uh, make it difficult to get through a lot of a, a lot of uh, cases, one after another. And so, a phone call is oftentimes an easier way for us to keep track of one another. Um, our membership class has also been something that's been very helpful for me in terms of getting to know those that are coming into the church. Well, all of these approaches they have their strengths and their weaknesses. Um, a phone call, one of the weaknesses is that you're not talking to everybody in the whole, in the whole house. You know, you're talking mostly to the father, or sometimes to the, the, uh, the wife, to the, to the mother, as she would pick up the phone during the day. And Pastor Hill and I, we wrestle over the very best ways in which pastors and members can get to know each other. And uh, one of the things that we've been encouraged with is the way Drew has been taking various ones to, out to lunch, and this is also another way in which we can get to know you as God's people. Well, I want to move on here. Pray for us, by the way, that the Lord help us develop in this area as pastors. Shepherds also, secondly, they feed their sheep. And there's no better example of this than the way that the Lord shepherds us, as depicted in the very first two verses of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. That little phrase, I shall not want, it's the exclamation of a sheep blissfully contented with being, having everything provided by the shepherd. And no doubt this refers to the comprehensive care that's received by those that belong to the Lord's flock, the Lord Jesus provides for me and I'm not going to want I'm not going to I don't need anything that he doesn't provide for me Ezekiel 34 depicts a stark contrast between the spiritual leaders that were false shepherds and the way the Lord feeds his flock in Ezekiel 34 we read in verse 1 and the Lord the word of the Lord came to me saying son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel prophesy and say to them Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. And then in verse 14, by way of contrast, the Lord says this. He's going to be the shepherd. Since you didn't do it, I'm going to do it. I will feed them in a good pasture. And their foals shall be on the high mountains of Israel. 
There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. Remember how Peter, he struggled being assured that the Lord had received him after he sinned grievously against the Lord. We had time, we turned to John chapter 21, but three times. What does Jesus say to him? Feed my sheep. One of the times he says, feed my lambs. This is the way you will, you will show your love to me. Feed my dear lambs. These lowly ones, these little ones, feed them the word of God. Well, the primary way that this takes place is through the public ministry of the word of God. We read in Acts 20 and verse 20 that Paul told the Ephesians that he had kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. In verse 27, he could say, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So pastors must not withhold any truth out of fear that they won't like it. It's not something that, it's something that's unpalatable to them. They need to feed the flock with all the doctrines of the Bible, all the duties of the Bible, all the promises of the Bible, all the, the gospel as well as the law. They must not seek to allow what they think the people want to hear to dictate what they will preach. They must give them what the sheep need, and that's all the counsel of God. And although the form of the pastor's sermon may vary, all of his sermons ought to be in one way or another expository in nature. An expository sermon in one way or another, what it does is opens up the meaning of the Bible. And one of the best ways to do this is by preaching whole books of the Bible or large segments of the Bible, like the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, and to do so in a consecutive manner. And there are tremendous advantages to this approach to teaching God's people. For one thing, it allows God to set the agenda about what's going to be preached. Instead of allowing current events always or political issues that are being discussed all week long on the news channels to set the agenda, rather than have that be the agenda, it brings us back again and again to the word of God. And the people are reminded that we're not here to advance a political agenda, no matter how righteous that agenda might be. We're not using the, uh, the pulpit to, to air our own personal agenda or personal opinions. Instead, it's God's word, and we're going to follow whatever God's word leads us. It's helpful to remember that newscasters, they make their money by ginning up anger over this or that issue. They get their ears all riled up about this or that cause. And yes, there's a place for, for pastors to address what's going on in the world. The prophets knew what was going on. They were perceptive, and they boldly preached to their own generation. But with consecutive expository preaching, it's God that is setting the agenda, not the newscasters and not everything else, everybody, everything that's going on in the world. And of course, that doesn't mean that there aren't times to stop and say, now what, is God, what does God have to say to us about this tsunami that just killed 200,000 people? How do we interpret that? There are times in which that's, that's, that is biblical. But consecutive preaching, you see, sets the agenda by way of God's word. In this preaching, it also forces the preacher to wrestle with the intention of the, to, to find out what God intends of that text. Faithful expository preaching, it doesn't treat the Bible as if it's play, if it's, if it's play putty. Well, this is what I think. 
well, this is what another person thinks, and we kind of all have, and we go around in a circle, we got about six different opinions, and they're all equally good because, because you see, this is the way you felt to you, this is the way it came to you. No, my friend, the Holy Spirit meant one thing when he said those words. And we need to discover as preachers, what did the Holy Spirit intend by those words? There might be different applications, but the Holy Spirit intended one thing. We need to discover that. In such an approach, you see, it also seeks to discover the relationship between the passage preached and the whole book, or as well as the, whole, as the structure of the, of the book. Oftentimes, you see, when you take a text here or a text there, they're wrenched from their God-given context. And there's a place for textual sermons, especially for evangelistic purposes. This was a strength of Charles Spurgeon. I think that it was also a weakness of his ministry. But I think of his ministry as being something like a 30-year evangelistic crusade where thousands were con- continually being converted under the word of God and one-time sermons. Pastor McDermott calls them fugitive sermons. They're very helpful in, in their place. And yet even in that text, you need to expound the, the, what it means and how we know that it means this in its context. And this kind of an approach also helps the preacher avoid riding his favorite hobby horse. We all have our pet peeves, the pet things we want to get back to again and again. You might have heard of the preacher that at the end of every sermon, regardless of the text, he would say, and now a few words about baptism. Well, moving on systematic through scripture, you see, it helps the pastors in providing a balanced diet for the flock. It also helps the people to know how to study the Bible. They can see this is the way the preacher wrestles with it and how the text is interpreted. And one of our aims is to teach you how to read your Bibles. So I believe that this kind of executive expository preaching, this should be the mainstay of our ministry. And of course, there are times when it's helpful to gather from the Bible what the Bible says on a topic, like a series on the attributes of God or the glory of Christ or sometimes on a practical issue. Years ago, Pastor Hill preached about uh, raising children, for instance. Uh, Such things can be preached from the Word of God in a very helpful way. But even those kinds of more topical approaches need to expound the meaning of the text of Scripture, the proof texts, as we call them, that are used throughout the sermon. In the public ministry of the Word of God, it also ought to take into account the various levels of understanding that exist in the congregation. As much as possible, the preacher should simplify what he's preaching to such an extent that even the babes in Christ can get the main point. But there are doctrines that are hard to grasp. Peter wrote of things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand. And because the preacher needs to feed mature saints to take them further, as well as new converts, there are times when declaring the whole counsel of God, it's going to require a teaching some more difficult matters. Some cases, maybe those situations are better maybe in a class of more advanced uh, uh, ones. We've done that from time to time. Uh, years ago, we, we taught some biblical theology, for instance. And so sometimes it's better reserved for something like that. But whatever the case is, it's an opportunity for all of us to, to, to show Christian love to each other. The baby Christ, if he doesn't understand, can say, well, I thank God that that person sitting down over there, he understands just what was said. I can see him nodding his head. And on the other hand, the one that's advanced in the faith, when something very basic is, is explained and he says, why are you taking so much time? We already know all that stuff. He can thank God that that simple babe in Christ has it put in that person's level and, 
It's brought down to that person, and each can, can profit from the ministry. And, of course, the, the shepherd needs to know how to divide the word of God according to the saints, like the steward of the household, as Jesus said, giving to each one his own appropriate food in his own season. And here is where teaching one-on-one or in small group settings are, are helpful. In small groups, the teacher can more easily gauge how much each one understands. Those that are weak in their understanding can have something explained further. And more personalized instruction can also be of special use in helping those that are struggling with particular sins. They're going through a trial, the caring shepherd. He needs to have a relationship with the sheep in which they're comfortable opening up and sharing what their struggles are. And so in a more private setting, the word can therefore be personally applied to the struggling sheep. So there's the ministry to the whole congregation, but then also one-on-one or family by family. And much of Jesus' teaching was in the latter. It's just a little group of disciples, or maybe even one or two, that he's speaking to along the way. Well, I had hoped to get through this list of what shepherds do, and I think we're going to stop at this point. I'm not sure if we're going to take time to go over these final points, but you can look them up in your own time. Shepherds need to lead the sheep. Just as we follow the Lord Jesus, the shepherds, by example, need to lead God's people. They need to lead them also by way of setting the agenda of the church. They need to protect their sheep. David rescued the sheep from the lion and the bear. Jesus laid his life down to rescue us. And so elders need to protect their sheep. But this is what Pastor Hill's doing. This is what Peter's doing in, in 2 Peter. He's warning the sheep. And we like to say, well, that's kind of dark stuff, all the wicked, the awful things that they're doing out there. But he's warning them. And there's a place for those kinds of warnings to protect the sheep. And that also shepherds, they heal their sheep. In Acts chapter 28, it stresses the duty of shepherds to have to be supporting the weak. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord reproves the shepherds of Israel. He says, The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back that which was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Well, I trust that even though we haven't been able to open up these last points, that you get the picture here this general picture of what it is for a pastor to be a shepherd of God's flock. Pray for us that we'll be like that. What a wonderful shepherd we have in the Lord Jesus. And I thank God that even when people leave us, they maybe are complaining about this or that. One of the things that gives me great comfort when that happens is that, well, I'm not the only shepherd that can shepherd that person's soul. Thank God there's the Lord Jesus that can follow that person take care of that person wherever that person goes. And he has a sheep everywhere. He has them in different churches, not just ours. And what a perfect and wonderful shepherd he is. Pray that we'll be more and more and more like the Lord Jesus, shepherding you in the way that he does the same for each one of us. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us the privilege of of and being in a house that, in which you have made it a requirement that those who lead in that household do so like loving, caring fathers in their own earthly households. 
And how we do thank you that as we are prone to wander, as we are prone to leave the God that we love, as we are like sheep that go astray, and as we are those that need instruction, that you've set pastors over us, above all the chief pastor, the Lord Jesus, to teach us in the way in which we should go. Bless us, we do pray, not only now, but in coming generations. Bless us even to raise up other pastors. Guide us even in these days concerning this matter, we do pray. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.